were a television show, we would begin every talk of this series with the phrase previously on Let Your Life Speak. And the reason is because it's so important for us to be on the same page about what we're studying. It's particularly critical with this series because when we think about what let your life speak implies, we actually think about what we're saying to the world around us, the, the story that our life might tell at our funeral. But our focus for this series is different. Okay, the idea is that we need to learn to listen to ourselves so we can discover who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. We, we say it all the time, and that's because it's true. We are created on purpose for a purpose. There is a divine design that God has for each of our lives that we can discover if we will listen closely to what our lives are telling us. But often, rather than listening to God speak through us, we're listening to the voices around us to find our place and purpose. Right? We, we want to be successful. We want to be admired. We want to be noteworthy. And since admiration comes from others, we let them define what success is for us. And at that point, we actually fall into the trap of living someone else's life and the abundant life of peace and fulfillment that God has for us, that He created us for, actually eludes us. So for the purpose of this series, the purpose is that we are going to learn to let our lives speak. To learn to take our cues from who God made us to be and not from what others want us to be. Those are different. Now, the first week we discovered a very, very important truth. And that is our lives are not always worth listening to. Our lives are not always worth listening to. The scripture says that apart from faith in and forgiveness from Jesus Christ, we are actually dead in our transgressions. In other words, there's no life in us. We are stumbling around in darkness. So unless we have life in Christ, then our lives aren't worth listening to because we are dead. And in this realm, death begets death. Death does not beget life. Now last week, we saw that in order to let our lives speak, we must practice wholehearted devotion to our Heavenly Father. The Scripture tells us that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ as the source of our lives, He actually replaces a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. So when we place our faith in Jesus, we have heart surgery. He takes out a heart of stone that is dead to life in him and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And that heart beats in rhythm with God and who he created us to be. But it must be anchored in faith in Christ. So when we devote our hearts to him, we can trust that our life will speak to us God will speak to us in ways that will guide us to God-glorifying decision-making. 
Now today we're actually going to begin the portion of our study where we learn to listen to our lives speak. We're going to learn to listen to our lives speak. And listening to and learning from our lives in Christ is really no different from learning from others. It requires one thing, one thing, curiosity. It requires curiosity. And you know how curiosity is cured? By asking the right questions. We have to be curious about what our life is teaching us. And that requires asking good questions. When we learn to ask the right questions of ourselves, then we will be able to discern what our lives are saying. Now the first question is one that must be asked at pivotal moments, those times when we are facing important decisions. We, we come to a fork in the road, and we know that we must keep going. We must decide which way to go, and so we must ask this question. Here it is. You ready? I hope so. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Now let me tell you the essence of that question. It is a conscience question. This is about learning to listen to the seed of God in your soul, which is your redeemed conscience. Listening to our redeemed conscience. See, here's what happens when we become believers in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We know, we, we say all the time, we ask Jesus into our heart. What happens when we place our faith in Jesus is that the Holy Spirit comes in and seals us, the scripture says, for the day that we will be able to enter heaven, but the Holy Spirit comes to guide us. He is a reliable guide on the path to holiness. He transforms us from the inside out. That's why Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. We are transformed from the inside out. And so our conscience when we place our faith in Jesus, actually becomes a mouthpiece for the Spirit of God. It literally, our conscience is plugged into the good. We have goodness running through us, which can't mix with badness. The goodness running through us cannot peaceably mix with badness. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a moment, but this is what Paul was getting at when he rhetorically asked the Corinthians, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Just as oil can't mix with water, goodness doesn't mix peaceably with badness, light doesn't mix peaceably with darkness, and right will never mix peaceably with wrong. Because they aren't mixing peaceably, because they can't mix peaceably, when good competes with bad in our decision-making, our redeemed conscience alerts us to the tension Good can't mix 
peaceably with bad. And when the Holy Spirit is in us, our conscience raises a red flag and says, there's a tension here that you're going to have to deal with. That is the tension that deserves our attention. Now, how do we respond to that tension? There is a great story in the Old Testament that can help us learn to respond to the tension that our lives, that our redeemed consciences are alerting us to. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to be reading in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So you can turn there or you can pull it out on your phone or whatever, however you're going to get there. But let me just give you the background here. The, the story revolves around King David, who is, by the way, not yet king. He's to be Israel's second king. But long before he became king, this happens. Okay. Now, as you may know, David actually steps into the pages of history as a boy shepherd. Okay. When, when he was a kid... The prophet Samuel showed up to his house and announced to his family that God had chosen David to be the next king of Israel. Now, I'm going to imagine this was a really good day for his family. The problem was, Israel already had a king. Alive and well, or at least alive at this point in time. But Saul, who was the first king of Israel, was really doing a, a poor job as king. So, according to the prophet Samuel, God had decided to replace him, and he broke with the custom, which would be to replace him with one of his sons. God decided that he was going to make a dynasty change. So he sent the prophet to the house of Jesse to anoint David, and after the ceremony, David left and went right back to shepherding sheep. Now, by and by, David made his way to a battlefield where he found out that all of Israel was scared of this giant named Goliath. And David, inspired by the Spirit of God in him, killed Goliath and immediately became a national hero. At this point, his status and fame actually far outpaced that of King Saul's, who began to see David as a rival. Now, the sad thing about King Saul was that he didn't have the self-confidence or the security to cheer one of his rivals from the bench. Instead, Saul decided that a rival was a threat, and what he was going to do was kill David. He needed to eliminate his rival. David figured out that that was happening with the help of Saul's son, Jonathan, and David and his band of 600 merry men fled Israel to hide out in the wilderness. And that's where the story picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. This was solid intel. So Saul took 3,000. Now remember I said David had 600. Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. So, this is important. 
Saul rounds up 3,000 able young men, men who were physically capable of surviving in the barren wilderness where David was hiding. Now, ironically and importantly, these young men most certainly idolized David. Remember, his fame outpaced Saul's. All the warriors wanted to be like David. They wanted their chance to step up and slay a Goliath for the good of God and his country. And so these men who were doing their duty following King Saul and chasing David actually idolized the very person they were chasing. So having rounded up these troops, Saul struck out in search for David, believing he knew exactly where he was. Now look at verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to, re- Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, hey, David. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now before getting up into the crags where he was sure to find David, Saul actually pauses the march to take care of business. Okay? This is really happening. We, we, we don't usually do bathroom talk in polite company, right? But, but it's, impor- it's an important part of the story. Okay? So our version actually says that Saul went in to relieve himself. But you, you need to know that the Hebrew phrase that's translated relieve literally means to cover his feet. Okay, It it means to squat. I'm just going to be honest. So he goes into the cave. All right, He tosses his robe aside so as not to soil it, because that would be very humiliating for the king on the other side of this business trip. He grabs a magazine and he settles in. All right? Now, what he didn't know... What he couldn't have known is that of the hundreds of caves in that section of the wilderness, this was the very cave. What are the odds? It was the very cave that David was hiding in. Now, David's 600 men were hiding all over that ridge. Hundreds of caves. When they got word that Saul was coming, they split up. And Saul decided that he needed some privacy, and he wanders into the cave, the very cave that David is hiding in. Now, David's men immediately recognize their good fortune. You think about it, these are 600 guys who've left families and homes behind. They are fugitives from the king of Israel. 
They're God's chosen people. And they want to live in God's promised land. But they're following David. And so they're out in the wilderness struggling. All they wanted to do was get home. And so when Saul wanders into this cave, the few guys that are with David say, hey, this is more than a coincidence. This is providence. Okay, This is a sign that God is right now putting a stop to our days on the run. To David's days as a fugitive. God literally, in that moment, delivered Saul on a silver platter. And he couldn't even fight back. So they say, and I'm quoting here, Hey, David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, He would give your enemy into your hands to deal with as you wish. Now go deal with him as we wish. How could you possibly pass up this opportunity? Now, let me give you a little insight about the Scripture. You can look everywhere and you'll never find God saying that to David. No record of him actually saying that. But he did promise David he would be king. Remember, he was anointed king as a young man. So they may not have had their facts straight, but they knew how the story was supposed to end. They were using the sudden, perhaps even miraculous appearance of Saul in the cave they were in to point out the obvious. This was the day, no question about it, that God would make David king. All David had to do was step out of that cave with the king's head in his hand, much like he came off the battlefield with Goliath's head in his hand. And those young men who idolized him would immediately pronounce him as king and usher him triumphantly back into the promised land. It would be that simple. So David responds to their encouragement saying, oh, I, I think you're right. This is it. And he quietly sneaks up on Saul. He, he, he wasn't going to miss the opportunity. You know, if you're looking for signs, it was all systems go. The door was open. The light was green. Whatever cliche you want to use, it was Go, David, this is it. No point in hesitating. Obviously, all of David's problems were going to be solved, and those men who had been faithful to him, they could go home. Everything was going their way. But when David gets in position to pounce, he senses attention. And that tension got his full attention. Now just think about it. He knows what his men expect. He knows what anybody that understood the story and the suffering they had gone through, he knows exactly what they would expect. He knows they want to go home, and he does too. As a matter of fact, David not only wants to go home, he wants to go home as king. God promised him he would be king. Who wouldn't want to go home as king? 
But there was a tension. And a question came to David's mind. Is this the way I'm supposed to take the throne? By murdering the king. Is this going to happen? So he hesitates. The question is, was, was, was this really God's plan? Or was this a test? And so he paused to listen to his life speak. And he hesitates to explore the tension in his soul. Now, you, you can just imagine, we have to imagine because we're not given this information, but you can imagine that David begins to anticipate how the future would play out if he seized this opportunity. Maybe he imagines his grandkids gathering around the dinner table and saying to him, Hey, Papa, tell us the story one more time about how you murdered the king so you could be the king. Maybe he envisions calling his people, the nation of Israel, to worship and challenging them to trust God and be faithful to his word. And he can hear the murmurs as they say, Hey, king, why don't you practice what you preach? And maybe most importantly, he wonders how he could experience the peace and the protection as God's anointed king after killing God's anointed king. There's a great tension. And after paying close attention to the tension, he can't do it. He can't slit Saul's throat. No matter how much grief his men are going to give him, no, no matter how much easier this would make his life, he won't do it. He's not going to play God. God anointed David to be the next king and he would trust God to make him king. He, he refused to faithlessly take matters into his own hands. But he sees Saul's robe lying up there on the rock and he has an idea. And so he quietly crawls over to that robe and he cuts off a corner of it. And then he slips back into the darkness undetected. And so when Saul finished, he grabbed his robe, he got dressed, he walked out of that cave completely clueless to how close he was to dying. Now, look what happens beginning in verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. He was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. 
He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. But the story's not over. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. In other words, I am not an evildoer. What happened? What happened in that cave? David paid attention to the tension in his soul. Needless to say, following God is not always easy. God doesn't always make give call us to the easiest path. But he does have a path and a plan. David thought God was revealing the path That morning in the cave. But there was a tension in his soul. A tension to which he paid attention. He resisted. He did not follow through and make a mistake that would have been an easy one to make. Now, what do we learn about paying attention to the tension? Three things, and we're finished. First, when there is a tension, stop, collaborate, and listen. I'm sorry I did that. I had to, I've never rapped in public. That was my first time. Should I finish it? No, I'm just kidding. When there is a tension, stop and listen. See, David got himself into a position to change his future. It was literally within reach. But then he felt it. He was at a fork in the road. It looked like The easy way was lit up. 
that it didn't feel right. There was something there. And at that moment, he just stopped. He stopped doing what he was doing and worked through the possibilities and saw that taking the easy road would not tell the story he wanted to tell. And he changed course. He took the narrow road, the road less traveled. But it was the road of peace. Peace between him and God. And peace in his heart. Now when we come to a fork in the road where we have a new opportunity. We're about to make a deal or take a new job or start a new relationship. If we experience the red flag of tension, and that's what it is, the red flag of tension, then we need to stop and fully explore the tension. What's this about? What, what's the problem? This seems so clear and so easy. But we need to explore it. And guess what? We may find that it's nothing. That, that it's fear or it's a lack of faith. But we may find it's everything. We may find that it's the Spirit of God speaking to us through our redeemed conscience saying, wait, think. This is not the way to go. So when there's a tension, stop and listen. Second, we need to understand that not every one will feel the same tension we do, even given the same situation. This is really important. This is where we, you learn to let your life speak, and I need to learn to let my life speak. See, not everyone, actually no one, is going to have the same experiences the same life story, the same strengths and weaknesses that you have or that I have. We are all created uniquely with unique assignments, unique gifts, unique opportunities. And so we have to learn to listen to our lives speak so that we're not listening to someone else's life speak. Did, did you notice what David said when he addressed Saul? Look back at verse 10. He said, This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Now some, seeing the opportunity, some other people urged me to kill you. But I spared you. 
I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Now, don't miss it. It was clear to everyone at the scene. David, David's men, Saul, and Saul's men. What was clear? It was clear that God delivered Saul into that cave. The, the, the Hebrews, the Jews, saw everything. In everything, they saw God at work. It was indisputable. God sent Saul in that cave. It wasn't coincidence. It was providence. Not one of David's men interpreting that scene questioned what should happen. But guess what? Not their call to make. Not their call to make. David was burdened with leadership at this point. And so David moved into position to do what anybody else would have done, celebrate God's deliverance of Saul that day. But he listened to his heart, and he knew that he couldn't kill Saul. It wasn't right for him. Now, why am I saying that? Well, in instances where we aren't sure what to do, where God's word isn't really crystal clear about what's right, those gray areas where we have the freedom to make a wise decision, and what might be right for me wouldn't be right for you, and what might be right for you wouldn't be right for me because we have unique experiences. In those situations, we are to listen to the voice of our redeemed conscience, not the voice of someone else's conscience. Really important. And when we're hearing our redeemed conscience, if we're seeking God for wisdom, and He's speaking to us, then we must choose to trust it and follow it. In writing to the Romans, Paul said about these kinds of forks in the road where we're just not sure what the right thing to do is. He said, if you can't do it in faith, you will do it in sin. Did you hear that? If you can't do it in faith, you will be doing it in sin. David knew he could not kill Saul in faith. So he turned away and he trusted God with his future so he could take the throne in peace. Now David had no idea what was going to happen. He didn't know how long he was going to be living out in the wilderness or what, was, what the future would look like. But just seven chapters later after David chose to trust God, an arrow pierced Saul's armor. And he ended up falling on his sword. And guess what? God made David king. David didn't make David king. God did. And David could take the throne with the confidence 
that it was God's doing. Because he listened to the voice of his conscience. Finally, when we pay attention to the tension, we pay attention to the tension because in that way, we are living by God-pleasing faith. In that way, we are living by God-pleasing faith. When, when David confronted Saul in the mouth of that cave, what did he say? Let the Lord judge between you and me. I'm, I'm content that I've done what I was supposed to do. He was confident that he would be vindicated by God because he chose to follow what God was saying through his heart. Now in faith, David knew that he didn't have to make his future. He trusted God with his future. God chose him as king and God would make him king when the time was right. That's faith. That is God-pleasing faith. And that's the most important thing. That, that's what life with God is all about. That's what we're listening for when we're saying, is there attention that deserves my attention? We're listening for God to give us a nudge, to give us direction, to choose by faith. Maybe the most difficult way. Maybe a way that no one else would understand. But that's the way we're going to choose because we are listening for the voice of God through our redeemed conscience. And then we choose the faith to follow it. We resist the urge to play God and make space for God to be God. Now listen, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are anointed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in much the same way that David was anointed. We are transformed. We lose a heart of stone. It's taken out and we're given a heart of flesh so that we can do what God called us to do and be who God called us to be. And so we know that God has a plan for us. And we know that God will lead us to follow that plan through both His Scripture, through mentors, in worship and through our conscience. The Holy Spirit guides us. And so if we learn to pay attention to the tension in our soul, we will be able to live the life that God has called us to live. To go where God has called us to go and be who God called us to be. But if we refuse, if we don't learn to let our lives speak, we could miss it.